know, the question is, what do we have the resources to do? Um, and how do we defend? Uh, how do we defend abortion access and access to contraception um, at a time when those things are enormously under assault, right? Um, and so I think that I think the resistance is of a kind to say like, well, we can't do everything, right? We need to stick to our mission. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. How did abortion rights become a battlefront in the culture wars? Felicia Cornblue has long been a participant observer in the fight for reproductive justice. Cornblue is professor of history and of gender, sexuality, and women's studies at the University of Vermont. She is also chair of the board of the Planned Parenthood of Vermont Action Fund. Cornblue's work to advance reproductive justice carries on the tradition of her mother, an attorney who was a key player in legalizing abortion in New York in 1970. Cornblue chronicles her mother's activism journey in a forthcoming book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice in New York and the Nation. I began our conversation by asking Cornblue about an article that she wrote for the American Prospect entitled Advice to Progressive Menfolk. The story appeared the day after Politico leaked the Supreme Court draft opinion with the bombshell news that Roe v. Wade would likely be overturned, which will have the effect of making abortion illegal in about half the country. Cornblue began her piece with the admonition, Don't you dare be surprised. I asked her why she wasn't surprised. Well, uh, first of all, I'll just say I wrote I wrote that piece the very night that the article came out. Um, uh, I don't know about other people, but I was immediately, you know, sort of deluged by um, communication from friends like, can you believe this? Is this for real? Um, you know, that Politico had gotten a hold of a draft Supreme Court opinion and that it was such a dramatic opinion. Um, and I started asking myself, like, what do I have to contribute that's different from what, you know, everybody else is immediately saying out of their emotions on Twitter or whatever. Um, and I started to see some people I knew or that I knew of who were sort of the, the smarty pants of the political class and the opinion making class, um, you know, offering the, what seemed to me like really abstract or long term visions like, oh, this will be good for the Democrats or, um, uh, you know, making some kind of calculation out of out of what was happening. And I felt like my my immediate reaction was so much more personal and um, and um, emotional and strong. And so many of the people that I hang out with had that kind of reaction. So I wanted to represent that kind of hot off the press, hot off of my heart kind of piece. So that was the piece that I wrote for the American Prospect, um, which is a progressive journal. And um, so, and I do, so I did say, don't be surprised. Don't you dare be surprised. And I felt a little bit like, I don't know if people remember this, like after Trump was elected, there was that Saturday Night Live skit with Chris Rock sitting with a bunch of white people who were supposed to be his friends, right? And they were all like, oh my God, how could Trump win? How could this country be that kind of a place that could elect Trump? And Chris Rock was like, uh-huh, yeah, I'm not surprised. You know, and I felt like, you know, as a feminist and as someone who teaches gender studies and sexuality studies and someone who's been around Planned Parenthood for many years and who was raised by a feminist lawyer mother who was a Planned Parenthood partisan, like I wasn't surprised. Um, and I wasn't surprised because I know what a tough fight it was um, even to achieve Roe versus Wade in the first place and what it's been like over the last 50 years of contesting um, abortion rights and other reproductive rights. And I've seen this coming from a long ways away. Um, and that doesn't make it any less um, dramatic or impactful or important, um, but it was not a surprise. So intellectually, you knew that the arc of history was moving us and the arc of politics really was moving us to this moment. But emotionally, what was it and has it been like for you to read that draft decision? Well, for me, it's it's heavy. Um, and it's heavy sort of simultaneously in a bunch of different ways. The 
the the essence of the argument in um, in Justice Alito's draft opinion, which which I'll just say um, uh, I'll predict is very much like the final opinion that we're going to get. And there's not going to be a lot of change um, in the majority opinion that we're going to get from the United States Supreme Court um, in this month coming. It'll probably be in three, three weeks. Um, so and the essence of his opinion is that this right uh, to sexual privacy that that um, gave us access to legal access to abortion um, in the first two trimesters of a pregnancy. That's the that's the Roe opinion. He says that 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 right of sexual privacy is basically a stranger to American history and a stranger to American law, a stranger to American traditions and all of that. And so. Um, you know, what that says to me as a lesbian and as somebody who identifies as a woman is I feel like I'm a stranger. You know, I'm a stranger to this body of law and to this political tradition and to this history. And, you know, and the history that Justice Alito thinks is the legitimate history is one that doesn't really have any time for me. You know, it doesn't doesn't know I exist. Um, or if it does know that I exist, is perfectly comfortable with oppressing me, marginalizing me, stigmatizing my my personal choices, my romantic choices, my sexual choices, right? Um, it really did say um, to me, um, you know, get out there on the margins where you belong, and that is a that's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, even knowing what we know about the way the Supreme Court is structured and how it's undemocratic, and you know. Um, what the, the way things have been going in American politics in the last few years, like it's a, it's it's tough to read that in a Supreme Court opinion. Yeah, it's really it, tough. It is, you know, it's um, you know, it's kind of like uh, you're warned repeatedly as a child, you know, don't play with matches, don't play with matches, and uh, you know this in your mind, but then to see somebody's house actually burning down because you played with matches, and that's kind of the moment that we're at and also the point that you make about Alito dismissing the right to privacy as something that's not actually in the Constitution. As many observers have noted, that is the foundation upon which same-sex marriage and a number of other things that are not enumerated in the Constitution um, would also go with it. Do you worry about that? Um, what do you what is your thoughts on that at the moment? Oh, I think I don't think there's any question about it. Um, and that is from reading the work of my friends and colleagues who are um, really smart, progressive um, professors of constitutional law. And it's also just from frankly, from reading the plain text of Justice Alito's draft opinion. Um, uh, and, and I'll say it's a third, I have a third source too, which is that there actually, there's a conservative legal community, which is very conservative and which is very strong and is really built, it's built kind of a robust network. And they, they, um, this network brings in kids when they're law students and cultivates them and, um, and supports them with conservative, um, uh, ambitious conservative lawyers, law professors, judges throughout their whole careers. And it's just an article of faith in that community that the Supreme that that Roe versus Wade, you know, was a mistake and that it had no real foundation in constitutional law, and that Griswold versus Connecticut, which preceded Roe and which established a constitutional right to access birth control, that that also has no place in our constitutional law, and that that's also kind of made up, you know, out of thin air. So that's it's definitely they're definitely you know gunning for Griswold. And the same thing for Lawrence versus Texas, which was um, the big case about same-sex intimacy, um, and for the cases having to do with um, same-sex marriage that followed, that they're all basically in the same line of constitutional interpretation. And and um, whatever Justice Alito might say in you know certain parts of that opinion, um, it's all part of the same conservative legal critique which has been there for many years. And like, you know, um, these folks, the, the folks who are, who are the really, these really conservative constitutional lawyers, they joke about this stuff all the time. Like they're, de they definitely see it all as, as of a piece. 
Um, and it's not about being quote unquote pro-life. So, really, you know, the, the, the discussion uh, often goes to, you know, people will respond by saying, uh, oh my gosh, they're taking us back to the pre-Roe days. That would be, you know, 1970 and earlier. Some people say, oh, this is, this is returning, you know, women to the state of the 1950s. Others point out that, no, we're actually going back to the New Deal and undoing the social contract established in the New Deal. Well, you're a historian. You can speak with a little more um, uh, authority. Where do you see us? What is this drive towards? What moment in history do you see us returning to as you study all these different eras of history? Oh, I'm so glad you asked because I think about this a lot. Um, and so I, I'm trained as a historian. And as a good historian, I know every point in time is actually different. Right. So we're actually not going back anywhere. Um, we're in our own time and it's its own thing. Right. So I, I um, to a large degree, I, I refuse this idea of going back. Um, and having, that having been said, um, this idea that we could just get rid of all, you know, of what the Supreme Court did in the late 20th century and all the kind of innovations around sexual privacy and liberty and um, uh, and all the innovations around, you know, race-based race liberty and equality, um, which are also, you know, in the sights of the current conservative Supreme Court. I think that it's a sort of 19th century vision. I mean, it's very, very dramatic. Um, this, is a, this is a crowd of people who really just aren't that happy with the 20th century um, and all of the different I mean, I'm, I'm sort of laughing and sort of not, right? And sort of all the different innovations, starting with the progressive period in the early 20th century, right? Which tried to use the governmental apparatus to do certain kinds of things, to fight poverty and to improve the public health and, you know, and to create a little more equality. And then the New Deal period of the 1930s, which went further along those lines. Um, and then the moves in the 40s and 50s, especially around racial equality. Um, and ultimately in the 60s around, you know, civil rights and voting rights um, and around women's rights and, and queer people's rights um, that came a little later. Um, I, I really think that um, con these conservative um, legal ideologues don't like any of it. And they, they don't like the federal government. They want to incapacitate the federal government. That's There's been a whole series of recent opinions sort of around that. Um, they don't want to uh, engage in, um, you know, federal taxation that takes money away from some people and gives it to other people. Like it's, <laughs> those were 19th century ideas, 19th century legal ideas. And so I think it's, I think that's, that's very, very dangerous. Yeah. How, what happens? I mean, more than a generation, it's 50 years since the passage of Roe. So, you know, several generations of people, uh, of women, have grown up with abortion being legal. How do you put that genie back in the bottle? Um, yeah, I think you don't. And, and I think, I mean, in a way, I think it's good. So, so what's going to happen, right? In three weeks, the Supreme Court is going to say Roe versus Wade was a mistake. And we need to erase it from the blackboard of history and pretend it never happened. So what does that mean? It means then that um, individual states will be um, responsible for, um, for legislating on this issue. So it's not going to be a federal court matter. It's going to be a legislative matter at the state level, right? Um, and there's going to be some federal regulation for as long as we have a Democratic president, at least like the federal, the Food and Drug Administration at the federal level is going to be able to provide some help and some protection. Um, and and I think that all those people who over the last 50 years have come to expect that they would have a certain amount of access to legal, safe um, abortion procedures as part of their health care, um, I think those those folks are not going to take it lying down. And I think it's going to make a difference. I think it's going to make a difference in terms of what happens in the states, you know, that state that state legislatures um, are going to have real, real fights about this, even in even in pretty conservative states. 
that there are going to be real political fights going on. Um, and I also think that people are going to be finding ways um, to get safe, affordable um, abortion care. And if they can't, they can't go to a clinic, um, then they're going to do it through the mails. Um, and one thing that's really different that makes this time not like the 19th century or not like the 50s or the 60s, you know, is that there is um, an option called medication abortion, which is available. It's a two drug regime. Um, you can buy the drugs online um, legally um, or semi-legally. It's safe. It's um, highly effective. And I think that people are going to use these drugs. They're going to use these abortion abortion pills. Um, and currently yeah. about half of abortions are done via medication abortion. Yeah. Yeah. And those numbers are going to go up. Um, and, um, and, you know, people are, people are going to find ways. Overwhelmingly, people are going to find ways. And the, one of the things about it is even if you live in a very, very restrictive state, right, if you take the two drug regime, it, it appears just like a miscarriage. There's no difference between what happens. You, it basically it brings on a miscarriage. So then you go to the hospital and you say, I'm having a miscarriage if you have any kind of complication or you need any support, right? And um, you should be okay. Um, people should be okay under those circumstances. So I think that is gonna happen a lot more. I, you know, I don't think, I mean, God, you know, I really hope I'm not, I'm not wrong about this, but I don't think we're gonna see kind of the coat hanger scenario. I don't see that happening. Um, I think people are going to, effectively people are going to say, I have this right. I still have this right. And they're going to kind of vote with their feet and vote with their well, vote with their bodies and continue to exercise that right. So rather than ask you to predict the future, which uh, is always a perilous job, especially for a historian, um, I would love to have you kind of talk about the kind of the, the brief version of the history of abortion rights and when it became a culture war issue, because um, Roe v. Wade was not a particular, you know, it was a, a seven to two decision, I believe, um, which is a fairly lopsided, uh, overwhelmingly, uh, you know, majority decision. This is not the era of razor thin five four um, decisions. So, what has been the story of abortion in the United States? Um. Well, I'll try and do that fast. Um, and I will say I have a book coming out in January called uh, A Woman's Life is a Human Life. Um, and uh, if people want to find out more about that, you should follow me on Twitter um, at, at @vtfeminist, um, or you can find me at the University of Vermont. Um, uh, so um, interestingly, this is one of those cases where we don't just see um, like progress over time. Things don't get more liberal over time. Like in the 19th century, at the early, in the early 19th century, abortion was more accessible. And then in the course of the 19th century, the accessibility is, is shut down. By the end of the 19th century, basically every state in the United States um, has some restrictive abortion law on the books. Um, New York was one of the first in 1830. I write about that. Um, and it was the first to criminalize both the doctor and the patient, the person seeking the abortion. Um, uh, and it really varies over time. And it's, the, the laws basically remain the same. These state laws remain largely the same, but then there are big differences in practice. Like during the Great Depression of the 1930s, um, it's actually quite liberal. You know, people are so poor and, um, and uh, birth control is not very reliable. So people have tons of abortions during the depression period of the 30s and, um, and even into world, the World War II period. And, um, and there's almost no prosecution because local police departments and DAs, they have other stuff to worry about. And they're sympathetic to the people, you know, people who are impoverished and trying to make their family lives work, you know, and then it changes dramatically sort of at the end of World War II and into the 50s when there's that increasing conservative kind of leave it to beaver, um, neo-Victorian sexual relations type of um, environment. And so you actually see uh, you know, the laws don't change, but you see dramatic shifts in how many people are getting nabbed, whether those are doctors or midwives or, or even individuals who are seeking um, abortion procedures. And then as a result of that, it gets really politicized in the 60s um, into the 70s. And that's what my book is about. 
Um, and so you see first there, you know, there are lots of women going, coming to emergency rooms um, with incomplete, so-called incomplete abortions, which are like, they get infections and are at risk of death and all that kind of stuff. Um, and there are lots of people coming forward and um, uh, either doctors or, you know, individual patients getting prosecuted and then having to go through the court system and all that stuff. And so you get a group of professionals first for doctors, some doctors and some lawyers who start to say, we need to change this law because this is not working. Um, and then the feminist movement of the 1960s really picks it up and treats abortion as a centerpiece of women's equality and women's civil rights. And then you see very, very quickly a dramatic change in the law. You know, it's really one of the great triumphs of organizing, of community-based organizing um, in the 60s. You go from, in New York, it's 1965, um, uh, a black legislator from Harlem named Percy Sutton introduces the first law to reform the abortion laws. By 1970, only five years later, the state has a completely different abortion law, the most liberal in the world in New York State. And then three years later, we have Roe versus Wade. And that's a result of this huge uprising from below. Um, and as you said, Roe versus Wade was not, um, it wasn't the knockdown, drag out fight that you would expect it to be given, given the way we think about abortion today. Um, but they did know that it was gonna be controversial. Like it's interesting inside the Supreme Court, even the, even the, the justices who had just been appointed by Richard Nixon, there were two justices who had just been appointed by Richard Nixon who voted with that um, majority in Roe versus Wade. They were Republicans appointed by Nixon, but but they, underst they understood what was going on in the country, right? And they were responding to these social movements that were organizing around this issue. Um, so when the opinion comes, it comes down in 1973, Justice Blackman, who's the guy who wrote the, the opinion and became identified with it, he knows it's gonna be controversial. Like I read his, his papers, um, his personal papers, and he does have some concern and he wants to read some kind of special statement to the media saying like, don't freak out everybody. <laughs> don't, this is, this is, this, this opinion is not as, you're not as dramatic as it sounds, you know, um, we're, we're doing something pretty normal here. Um, and so like, so that indicates to me that he knew that there was going to be controversy. Um, but they couldn't anticipate what was going to happen later and the way that it became um, deeply politicized with the with the political parties that it really was a conservative Republican campaign to make abortion. Um, I don't know, I guess a centerpiece of their organizing. But that didn't happen right away. When did that happen? When did it become a centerpiece of conservative politics? Well, it happens in the course of the 70s. I mean, I'm just I'm a little bit resistant to um, to thinking that it was you know, really late just because I see in New York, after they changed the law in New York in 1970, you really can see a change right afterward, right? Um, the right to life movement grows exponentially after New York changes its law. So that's before Roe, right? Already by 1971, 72, it's, it's beginning on that road toward being uh, a matter of political polarization. Um, it's not as big as it becomes, but there, but it actually does happen. And there's a move right away to repeal the liberal abortion law in New York. Um, and it almost succeeds. In 1972, it almost succeeds. Um, so, so the, um, the move toward political polarization around abortion, it does kind of get going right away as soon as there is um, dramatic success for the pro-choice movement, whether that in New York, it's 1970 at the national level with Roe versus Wade, it's 1973. Um, yeah, and then you see it really, really heat up in the late 70s. Um, and I tell I tell a lot of those stories too, that, um, uh, that there's a kind of combined effort in the late 70s into the 80s to create a new conservative Republican politics, which is gonna be about um, about reinstituting economic inequality, um, you know, putting more money and power in the hands of rich people and corporations, and at the same time pursuing this so-called um, moral majority agenda, which is basically um, anti-gay um, and anti-feminist. 
I want to go back to 1970. You say that the New York law was the most liberal abortion rights law in the world. What exactly did it do? And um, what was the immediate effect of it in 1970? Um, well, what it did was it decriminalized abortion. So right, it had been a crime from 1830 onward. So in 1970, New York decriminalized abortion um, through the 24th week of a pregnancy. Um, and most importantly, um, New York law said that you didn't have to be a resident of New York in order to take advantage of this law. Um, you could come from any US state, you could come from any place in the world to New York. And people did that immediately. Um, I, you know, I have the data and from literally in the first year of the law, every state was represented and something like 25 different countries. It was mostly people coming from Canada and, um, from close by countries, but still, um, it was very dramatic. And, um, that wasn't what they, that, that, that wasn't what they wanted, by the way. So my, my mother was a lawyer. And she drafted the original version of that law. And what she wanted um, and what other feminists wanted was no restrictions of any kind, right? That's what we have in Vermont today, no restrictions. Um, so um, back in 1970, they weren't quite able to get there with the no restrictions, but getting to the 24th week um, with no residency requirement, that was very dramatic. Um, yeah, that was a big, a big leap forward from anything that any other state had done. Felicia, tell us a little bit about your mother, Beatrice Cornblue Braun, and the work that she did. Well, my mother was a lawyer. Um, she, well, she was born in the 20s, um, the 1920s. So um, she became a lawyer um, at a time when there were almost no women lawyers in the United States, something like 4%. Um, and she graduated law school. Um, in those days, you didn't have to um, have a four-year college degree. So she went to law school after two years of college and was very young when she graduated law school. She, so she graduated from law school even earlier than Ruth Bader Ginsburg graduated from law school. Um, and you can imagine how much sexism there was uh, at that time. And um, even though her specialty was labor law and she worked for the National Labor Relations Board, um, you know, which supervises union elections. She was a very committed feminist and a member of the National Organization for Women. And since she was the the only lawyer who was involved in the New York City chapter of the National Organization for Women, um, the head of the abortion committee asked her to be the one to actually draft the law that um, that embodied their position, the now the now position on abortion, which was that there should be absolutely no restrictions and that abortion should just be taken entirely out of the criminal code and that it was none of the government's business to regulate this particular form of healthcare. That was the that was the feminist position of the day, right? And that that was a matter of women's civil rights. So my mother went through the whole state legal code. She didn't, you know, she didn't. Uh, have a computer that she could search automatically with. So it was very cumbersome. And she outlined, she found all the different places in the state legal code where abortion was mentioned. You know, it's it's not just the criminal provisions, but it's also in the code that has to do with um, regulating um, medicine and who gets to hold a medical license, you know, because if you were convicted of being a quote unquote abortionist, they would take your medical license away. You know, so she had to find every place where it where it was indicated and outlined a law um, that effectively took abortion completely out of the state legal code. And then that draft, it went straight to um, an upstate New York Republican, Republican woman um, named Constance Cook, who was a member of the legislature. And Constance Cook took my mother's draft and she turned it into a bill. She like gave it to the appropriate people in the legislature to turn it into a bill. And she introduced the bill um, at the very, very end of 1969 um, in preparation for the 19, no, sorry, 68, in preparation for the 1969 legislative session. And then that was the bill that people discussed and considered, you know, should we take abortion out of the legal code? 
um, over the next year plus a little bit until they finally passed a version of that law in um, April of 1970 that became the most liberal abortion law in the United States. Why was abortion rights so important to your mother? I'm not 100% sure. Um, I mean, I know that it was. It was a complete passion of hers always. Like when I was a kid, my mother used to say, they were butchers. You don't understand. They were butchers. Like, it was like, a, you know, I heard I heard about that as much as I heard about, um, I don't know, Cheerios or <laughs> um, that I needed to put, you know, bring a pen in my backpack or something. They were butchers. Uh, never go to a Catholic hospital, she used to say. Um, I think some of it was... Um, that my mother herself had had an abortion. Um, she never she never told me that, um, but I found a letter after she died in which she said, she told a friend about a bunch of um, what she described as bad things that had happened in the last couple of years. And one of them was what she's called a quote unquote D and C. Um, and D and C was, it was a euphemism for abortion um, in the early 1960s. And it still is a phrase that's used sometimes for, and a procedure that's used sometimes um, in cases of abortion or some in signs in cases of miscarriage um, to um, to um, to manage uh, uh, what's left in the womb so that somebody doesn't get infected. Um, so um, I don't know, I guess it might have been a miscarriage, um, but it was it's more likely since she used that euphemism that she had some kind of an abortion. And I don't really know, like maybe um, since she was an older mother, maybe, um, she had an ultrasound and found uh, something wrong um, with an embryo or a fetus that she was carrying and decided to have this DNC procedure. I don't know because she never told me, but I do have that little bit of evidence. And then the other thing, just a, one more little data point I have, is that my mother was sexually assaulted at one time before she met my dad. And I think that might also have played a role in it, that she was always aware that, you know, a woman could be a victim. She could be a sexual victim. And there was, she couldn't imagine, I'm sure that she couldn't imagine anything more horrible than having to carry a child to term under those circumstances. So those are my two theories about it. You open your book um, by talking about the scene at her funeral in which your sister is asking your father about your mother's role in an organization that was central to the abortion rights fight in New York. And you didn't even know that she was part of that group. Can you just recount how what you knew and what you only later learned about your mother's role in fighting for reproductive rights? Yeah, so my father used to say, my mother would never say this, but my father used to say, you know, the law that legalized abortion in New York was written in our living room. You know, it was your mother who wrote that law. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, you're a kid and you don't think about what people are saying around you. And um, uh, and also my father sometimes, you know, exaggerated a little bit. He wasn't, you know, he was the teller of the tall tale sometimes. So um, after, um, after my mother had a stroke um, and I couldn't ask her these questions anymore, right before she died, uh, my father and my my sister had this conversation and, and my sister mentioned this organization I'd never heard of and said, oh, you know, didn't mom work through that organization, the professional women's caucus, it was called, didn't she work through that organization to, pat, but to pass the New York abortion law? And my dad was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's what it was. Um, you know, I, I didn't know anything about any organization. I didn't, I didn't understand what my father was talking about when he used to say my mom wrote the law, you know. Um, I thought maybe that wasn't even true. Um, and really it was only, I, I went to the house of uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning historian named David Garrow. Um, David Garrow has, has this incredible archive in his basement and all the other archives were closed because of COVID. So I went to David Garrow's house to, to look in his, the papers that he used when he was writing about Roe versus Wade. And I found this letter in which my mother you know, wrote to uh, a state legislator and said, here's an abortion law. <laughs> here's the outline of an abortion law. You should, you know, turn it into legislation and go introduce it. So I actually found the piece of paper where she did indeed write the law that legalized abortion in New York, or at least she wrote the first draft of that law. Um, and it was quite amazing the day when I actually had it in my hand. That 
is remarkable. That is definitely touching history there. Uh, and so interesting that it was in David Garrow's basement, um, who uh, people may know as a, a chronicler of the civil rights movement as well, and Martin Luther King. You also write about in your book, your neighbor across the hall, Dr. Helen Rodriguez Trias, um, and how she and your mother were walking, let's say, parallel paths towards reproductive freedom, but not always in alignment. So explain who Dr. Rodriguez Trias was and what their, your mother and uh, the differences were between their two approaches. Yeah, um, I mean, maybe maybe for the framework, I should just say, so um, this is a, it's a story about, um, about abortion rights, but it's not just about abortion rights. Um, my, my goal in the book is to, is to talk about abortion rights and how we can defend them more effectively. And it's also to talk about what today many people call reproductive justice, which is um, a political agenda that includes abortion rights, absolutely. But it also includes many other things like, um, like resisting sterilization abuse and making sure that everybody has um, enough financial resources so that, that they can, so that they can raise children. Um, it's, um, it's a, it's a much wider approach to reproductive rights and what, what that could mean, um, for people in America. So this woman who lived across the hall from us for several years, I only found out again, after my mother passed away, um, that our next door neighbor was, was also a reproductive rights champion, but she was a reproductive rights champion of this, um, this bigger agenda that today we call reproductive justice. So. Helen Rodriguez Trias was a, a Puerto Rican woman doctor trained in San Juan, um, a specialist in, in uh, infant and child health. And she became uh, one of the leaders and founders of a group called the Committee to End Sterilization Abuse, or CESA, uh, which was the first organization in the US that was committed to that piece of the reproductive rights struggle. Um, the piece which says that everyone has the right to, to have a child uh, if they want to have a child, and also the right to not have a child if they don't want to have a child, right? But she was working on the right to have a child part of it. Um, and uh, but, that- But oh, say, oh, say, oh. say something about the issue of sterilization abuse that somebody like your mother may not have been as viscerally sensitive to but women of color were very much so. So talk about the role of sterilization uh, in this whole orbit of abortion rights and reproductive rights and reproductive justice. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, it's, a, it, it's one of those real moments where you see how, how race and people's historical experiences, you know, shape our, shape our vision and our politics, right? So um, if you were white, um, and middle class and married um, in post-World War II America, you couldn't even get um, a sterilization if you wanted to, right? If you were a guy, it was very, very hard to get a vasectomy. If you're a woman, it was very, very hard to get the procedure called a tubal ligation or sterilization, right? Doctors wouldn't do it for white middle-class people, especially if they were married. However, um, if you were black, if you were indigenous, um, if you were Puerto Rican uh, living in Puerto Rico or living on the mainland, if you were Mexican-American in, say, Southern California, um, then not only were you able to access a sterilization, but in many, many cases, there were doctors who would pressure you and, um, and sort of um, lie to you, in some cases really lie, about the implications of this procedure because those doctors believed that it would just be better for you and for the whole society if you didn't have any more kids. So there was actually an epidemic of sterilization abuse in America in the 60s and 70s. Um, and it was so racially specific that my, my mother as a white woman, you know, married and living in New York City had no idea that it was even happening. But for this woman who was our neighbor, Helen Rodriguez Trias, coming from Puerto Rico and being in the Puerto Rican community in New York, 
she totally knew that it was happening, right? She worked at a hospital. It was happening in her hospital. Um, and Black people who were involved in the Black freedom movement knew that it was happening. It was happening, you know, overwhelmingly in the South. Um, people like Fannie Lou Hamer, the great civil rights activist, she was sterilized with not only without her consent, without her knowledge. She went to the hospital for one procedure and, you know, came out and had a hysterectomy that she had never consented to, right? Um, so, um, yeah, it was, it's an extraordinary moment of like, even with, even for women facing um, different kinds of discrimination in the healthcare system, depending on your racial background and your financial background, you had a totally different experience. But if you were a woman of color, a poor woman, somebody who was, whose healthcare came from Medicaid, right, going to a public hospital, um, it was very likely that you were going to face this kind of pressure um, to consent or accede to a sterilization procedure. The larger agenda of reproductive justice advocates um, still meets resistance. Talk about your own experience. You're uh, as an, uh, an activist as well as an academic. You're on the board of the Planned Parenthood uh, Action Fund here in Vermont. Where do you find resistance uh, come up in these conversations? Well, I think it's really hard um, in our contemporary politics, right? And, and it, it comes up, um, it came up all the time when I was on the board of Planned Parenthood of Northern New England, and it comes up um, some in, uh, in our state, um, our state Planned Parenthood advocacy organization as well. You know, the question is, what do we have the resources to do? Um, and how do we defend, uh, how do we defend abortion access and access to contraception um, at a time when those things are enormously under assault, right? Um, and so I think that, I think the resistance is of a kind to say like, well, we can't do everything, right? We need to stick to our mission. Um, or to say, you know, we don't have enough staff, we don't have enough budget. How can we take on the world, right? And I'm really, I'm very respectful of those limits. Like I know what it's like to try and run an organization and meet a budget and, um, you know, uh, and I know that, um, and of course I know that, that the anti-abortion um, energy and the anti-LGBTQ energy is so profound right now. Um, but I think my counter argument and the, the counter argument that, you know, that increasingly people are making inside um, Planned Parenthood organizations around the country and NARAL organizations around the country and um, and other you know, clinics and nonprofits that are working in this area is to say, um, you know, we're getting we're getting beat now. You know, our approach is actually our current approach is leaving us um, politically vulnerable, if we only think about abortion, that leaves us, I won't say that that's our necessarily our current approach, because it's not everywhere. But if we only focus on abortion, that leaves us very politically vulnerable. And we might do better if we actually took on the bigger agenda of reproductive justice. You know, we what, might... what does that look like, taking on the bigger agenda? Um, well, to, to at least start by saying, we care just as much about people's ability to have the children, to have the families they wanna have. We care as much about that as we do about their right and their freedom and their privacy to not have children when that's their choice, right? The two sides of the coin are just as important. And so we care about abortion and contraception. That's about not having kids when you don't wanna have kids or you feel like you can't for whatever reason. Um, and then there's the other side of it. When you do want to have kids, when you feel like you're able, when you feel like you're in a relationship that supports that, um, you know, what's it going to take for us as a society to enable that, you know, in a humane and caring way where we say, you know, that this is a, it's a lovely thing, you know, to have the family you want to have. So uh, we, we're going to give you the social supports that enable that. At the very, very least, we're going to make sure that you never are coerced into giving up that right, you know, through sterilization. But that's the very, the very, very minimum is we're going to protect you like hell to make sure you never get pushed around um, by somebody who thinks that you're not supposed to have kids. 
But then beyond that, you know, what can we provide that's going to make it easier? It's going to enable um, people to have the families they want. Let's talk about the world that we are inexorably seems apparently driving, sliding towards the post-row world. What do you think should be the focus now of reproductive justice and reproductive rights activism? Well, I think, I think it has to sort of operate on two tracks. And I think, I think it is very, very important for everybody, you know, no matter your, um, no matter your income or your race or your geography or anything, um, to do, to do the political work that is going to allow for, a, um, abortion access because without that many people's lives will be changed for the worse, right? Their, their health may be, um, harmed or destroyed. Um, some people will die. Um, that, you know, they may choose an unsafe, uh, method of abortion and die that way, but even just through childbirth, right? More people die from childbirth than die from abortion. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so I think that there has to be one level has to be the fight for abortion rights and abortion access, um, and all the other things that's, that are currently in the sights of the conservative Supreme court. So that also means queer rights. Um, rights to access to contraception and so on. Um, and at the same time, I think we need to work on this, this other parallel track and um, give it just as many resources, which is to say, um, we believe in everything that enables people to have the families they want. We can disagree about, about the morality of abortion, right? Uh, maybe we can have a principled disagreement about that, but maybe we could all agree that there are other things that are that are important that we can stand for: childcare, higher minimum wages, um, safe streets. You know, be, people being free from police violence, um, so that they're you know they're they're not worried when their kids walk out in the street that they're going to you know, get into some kind of terrible situation um, where they're you know where a, a, somebody misunderstands them and thinks that they're a criminal um, or treats them like a criminal. Um, you know, all of that is part of reproductive justice, um, basic health care, right? Universal access to, to a minimum of health care for, for all people. Um, people need that in order to have healthy, safe families. And, um, and I think a reproductive, uh, rights movement that was really, you know, that's really worth its salt will fight for all of those things. Vermont is... Uh, on the verge of passing a constitutional amendment protecting reproductive rights, uh, Proposal 5. What happens? Mitch McConnell has already indicated that he is supportive of a national abortion ban. So what happens to Vermont's constitutional protection if there is a national abortion ban? Um, well, I'm guessing that um, uh, you, you know the legal answer to that question, which is that the federal government wins. Right. If it's a we have federal supremacy in this country, um, although, you know, tech, Texas's abortion law seems to have uh, somehow skated under this. But uh, I'm guessing that if it was an anti-abortion law, that um, uh, that it would that federal supremacy would hold. So, yeah, if the if the U.S. if the U.S. Supreme Court um, decides that um, fetuses have constitutional rights, or if the U.S. Congress passes um, a blanket abortion restriction that applies to the entire country, then Vermont's uh, state constitutional amendment, which we do expect to pass by referendum in November, um, although that doesn't mean you shouldn't vote for it, um, that that referendum would become um, would become null, right? It wouldn't be meaningful. So we do have to make sure that the U.S. Congress doesn't do that. <laughs> but that's a that's a big one. We have to make sure the U.S. Congress does not take that action. And insofar as we can, we have to pressure the Supreme Court, too, that it doesn't do something even more dramatic and draconian than what it's ever what, it, what it's planning to do right now. You work with young people in your daily life as a professor at UVM. Uh, and I'm sure that for many of them, these are really troubling times. 
What do you say to them as somebody who both professionally and personally has the long view? What do you say to them to perhaps reassure them or keep them moving forward? Well, I wrote this book really for them. And, um, and I do, I end on an optimistic note, um, even though I, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat the situation that we're in right now. Um, but I'm optimistic in two ways. And I, so I share this message with my students. One is that in the 1960s and 1970s, it was not easy to win abortion rights or other reproductive rights, right? It was a very hard fight, um, but it was an effective fight. And I think, you know, every time we look at a, at a really ambitious social movement in American history, we see that that it really that organizing really works. You know, when people come together from diverse backgrounds and they give it everything they got, they win. You know, the Democratic Party was not a big friend of abortion rights in the 1960s. Like there was nothing nothing easy about convincing Democrats. Um, it was very much beholden to the to the Catholic Church and afraid of the church. Um, but they managed to change the Democratic Party in like a couple of years, <laughs> at least in New York, right? It was it was a very rapid shift. So that's the first thing. Organizing works. And if we put our shoulders to it, we win. Um, history, I think history is really clear on that point. And the other thing is that there are good things happening today. And I think Vermont is a good example, right? Our reproductive liberty amendment, it's not everything. You know, it's not like the ideal reproductive, you know, um, theoretical ideal of reproductive justice that we might have someday, but it's really good, right? Because we not only are going to, in Vermont, we're standing for people's right to access abortion and also their right to be free from uh, other kinds of intrusions in their reproductive lives. So the Reproductive Liberty Amendment would cover this issue of sterilization abuse that I've been researching, right? You, you, you would be free from any kind of uh, coercion or abuse in that area as well. And it will cover people who are in same-sex relationships and people who, I, who are non-binary and whatever kinds of reproductive health care they may want to access. Um, and I think that's really important. That's real progress. And we can, we can do that in a small state like Vermont. I think we can do it in other states as well. Well, Felicia Cornblue, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me.